hear the word of the Lord. As a prisoner for the Lord, then, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. But to each one of us, grace has been given as Christ appointed it. This is why it says, when he ascended on high, he took many captives and gave gifts to his people. What does he ascended mean, except that he also descended to the lower earthly regions? He who descended is the very one who ascended higher than all the heavens in order to fill the whole universe. So Christ himself gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors and teachers to equip his people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, <clears throat> attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. Then we will no longer be infants tossed back and forth by the waves and blown here and there by every wind of teaching and by the cunning and craftiness of people in their deceitful scheming. Instead, speak the truth in love. We will grow to become in every respect the mature body of him who is the head, that is Christ. From him the whole body, joined and held together by every supporting ligament, grows and builds itself up in love as each part does its work. This is the word of the Lord. We've been in a series, uh, we're at second week in a three-week series on the church. Last week we talked, and we're breaking it up into first free Methodist. So last week we talked about what first church is about and our mission. And then this week we're going to talk about free Methodism, the denomination that we're a part of, and we're going to hit a lot of stuff, really uh, high-level stuff. And then uh, next week we're going to talk about Methodism and the Wesleyan movement uh, that we're a part of that's global and uh, been historical, and we'll learn about some things about how we are people of grace as well. So, but today I want to give us a little, a little bit of a roadmap, and this is, if you're a note taker, this would be a really good time to take notes, by the way. I know some of you are students and you're like, I don't want to take another note, uh, but part of this is for those of you who want to kind of hold on to it or just hold your phone up and take pictures of slides as they come up or something, because I'm going to cover a lot of information, especially at the end of this sermon, really quickly. And we will get through it. We're not going to be here all morning. So one of the things I'm going to do is we're going to talk a little bit about the cultural context of the church today, where we're at culturally. Then we're going to talk about the scripture, if the biblical context, and how that can help us reflect on the culture. And then we're going to look at our denominational context the histor histor historically and then where we're headed as a denomination within the cultural context and the biblical context that we're learning about. So everybody with me so far? So three movements, three contexts we're going to talk about. The first one is the cultural context we're in today. 
Uh, many leaders have been saying this. Is, I'm not, this isn't a term that I've come up with, but I've heard many uh, church leaders and national leaders as I've been uh, talking with them or hearing different speaks, uh, people speak and things, something that has been termed that what, the, what we've experienced over the past years is what is being called a cultural convulsion. And I thought that's a pretty good way to describe it, isn't it? And it does it feel to you like it's, we've been in the midst of a cultural convulsion? Like it's just kind of like we're, we're kind of don't even know how to react anymore. We're not really sure which way things are going. And so it feels that way. Now, this cultural convulsion has obviously impacted the church. And uh, when, especially one of the terms that we hear about the church today, as you may have heard of the evangelical church or the term evangelical, the evangelical movement started well before our lifetimes. Uh, I, we have a church historian here. Doug, when do you think the—I'm going to put you on the spot. When did the evangelical movement start? Depends on how you define it, right. What a professor. Typical professor. Yeah, right. So we got to dig deeper on that, right, right, professor? So, but the bottom line here is it, it started before the free Methodist movement. Let me put it that way. The evangelical movement existed, and the free Methodist church was a part of the evangelical movement in the 1800s, late 1800s. So the evangelical word evangelical today is, is maybe seen negatively, but it, it's these four emphasis in the evangelical movement. The, uh, the emphasis on conversion, the emphasis on the authority of the Bible, an emphasis on the centrality of the cross and Christ, and then activism that is both missional and social. Missional and social. So those four things made up the evangelical movement historically. The Free Methodist Church was a part of that evangelical movement. It came after, uh, it, it was, if uh, you look at the evangelical movement as a stream, the free Methodists were, were, were coming into that river, that, into that movement in the 1800s, right? So that's a little uh, perspective on that. Uh, the, the term evangelical, I know people today who don't even want to be called evangelical, they want to get away from the term because it's been seen so negatively, but really that's what it means to be evangelical, what I just described. Now, so as I'm thinking about, as I'm hearing from these other leaders, uh, church leaders, nationally known leaders, in the, what we would call the evangelical church, and some are in different categories, what we're seeing today in the evangelical church is division. The evangelical church today is divided. They're, they're, you can look at different evangelical leaders and you can see they're taking different directions, they're taking different trajectories, and depending on who it is. And the other thing that's happening within the evangelical church is that people now are keeping score. I would say this is true of any church across the nation. And this is happening. So what I'm describing isn't what I, I'm not just describing here. I'm describing what I'm hearing is happening all over the United States, all over the American church from what other people are reporting. So here's what's happening. The, the not only are the leaders seeing this, but people in the pews of churches are keeping score. That's what's happening. They've got a little scorecard, mental scorecard, and they're saying, okay, well, if the pastor says this, I'll stay. If the pastor says that, I go. For example, uh, back in June of last year, if a pastor said something about George Floyd in a sermon, people who were keeping score left the church. If a pastor stood up on that Sunday and didn't say anything, people left the church. They were keeping score. 
you could actually look at the scorecard this way. I mean, there are some other things. What are some other things people have been keeping score on in the church? Who did you vote for in the last election? What, who'd you vote for for president? That's a score. Uh, are you for masks or against masks? For vaccines, against vaccines. LGBTQ issues, social justice, whatever, the, just pick an issue, right? And people are keeping score. And these issues are what is a part of what's dividing the evangelical church. Now, the other thing that's been problematic for the evangelical movement is that in 1976, the evangelical movement began to, combine, began to be in relationship with a political party. In 1976, the evangelicals started to associate themselves with a particular political party, and you know that party. So when that happened, that changed some of the landscape of the evangelical movement. But don't take my word for it. If, it, if you've ever heard of a, a, he's a pastor, retired pastor uh, out of New York City, Church of Redeemer, Tim Keller put it this way in a recent interview. He said, in virtually every church, there is a smaller or larger body of Christians who have been radicalized to the left or to the right by extremely effective and completely immersive internet and social media loops, news feeds, and communities. People are bombarded 12 hours a day with pieces that present a particular political point of view, and the main way it seeks to persuade is not through argument, but through outrage. People are being formed by this immersive form of public discourse far more than they are being formed by the church. I tend to agree with Pastor Keller there. See, we're formed, we're people, regardless of what movement we associate with, what, what lenses we look through, we as the people of the, of the one book, the Bible, are to be saying, looking and finding out what is that biblical lens, what is that perspective of the kingdom, and then let's look at the world and the culture around us through that lens. Let's not have our lenses prescribed by the 12-hour-a-day media feeds and loops and social media and the, media, the opinions of people on social media that may or not have the credibility to speak to those things. Imagine how much we're listening to the opinions and insights of people who maybe don't have the credibility to speak to those things. So I, I know that one of the things is that, can I just share a pastoral frustration? Can I be a little honest with you today? I am frustrated by that <laughs> as a pastor. And I can say this because I'm on my way out and you can do whatever you want with it, right? But the frustration for me is that I've only got like 30 minutes of your time to somehow reconnect us back to God and to what the God has to say for us. And I, I can't compete. <laughs> I can't compete with the social media. I can't compete with the media. I can't compete with all the cable news sources that people are listening to and picking and choosing from. I can't do it. I'm, I'm not, I, I can't compete with the cultural convulsion. And so what I've tried to do consistently is to bring us back to God and what God might be saying to us in the cultural convulsion. And that's what I'm doing today. So let's take a look at Ephesians chapter 4. You heard it read already, but let's go back to the very first verse of Ephesians chapter 4. It says this, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. 
The calling you and I have received as Christians, as followers of Jesus, is an invitation to follow Jesus, to be a disciple of Jesus Christ. So when Paul says to live a life worthy of that calling, that worthy word means to live in a way that fits with the calling, to fit the invitation, that fits the person of Jesus Christ, that fits a disciple. Not, and those are values, so we, we seek to take on the values of Jesus and the values of the kingdom and the values of the gospel and of the biblical text, right? And so Paul actually defines those values for us right here in chapter 4. They're what uh, some commentators have called the relational ethics of the Christian, right? So here are the, I'm just going to pull all five up right here. Here are the five relational ethics. Humility, gentleness, patience, tolerant love, and peacekeeping. Those are the values of someone who is living a life worthy of the calling. So here's my question. Is that on our scorecard? Are those values on our scorecards? Are those the things we look to? And as you look at some Christian leaders today or Christians today, are those values exemplified in the way they're articulating their politics? Are they articulating with those things, those values? So how do our relationship ethics compare? The other part here that Paul says is part of this worthy life of the calling is to focus on unity, not division. Did you hear that? It says make every effort literally means to be zealous for, to be passionate about unity. So if we think about this, if we're passionate about unity, how does that compare? Does our passion for unity compare with our passion for whatever our opinion is? Which passion is more passionate for us? Which is really our passion? Because I think sometimes we tend to get polarized because of our passions about these different ideas or politics or whatever, can we just fill in the blank, right? This is not just one thing. But we've not made unity our passion. We've not made unity the calling of our lives. And so that's what we're called. That's what Paul here in this passage is calling us to into the kingdom of Jesus Christ. So you may be wondering, well, how do you do that? <laughs> like, well, one simple illustration is to kind of look at the Christian life and walking and being community with other Christians is like lanes in a highway. You ever been on a multi-lane highway, right? And you're all moving in the same direction, right? You, you can have unity of direction, but people, you might have people in one lane, like if you, I don't know what kind of driver you are. Some of you haven't learned to drive yet. That's okay. You'll learn all about this quite soon, is that you can, if you want to drive the speed limit, you're probably going to be in the center lane, right? Typically, maybe, if you want to drive faster than the speed limit, you're going to be over in one of the left lanes. If you are, need to go slower or put your hazards on or you've got a big wide low, what are you going to do? You're going to move into the right lane, right? And so these three lanes, you could pick a lane, right? But there, is there not unity of direction, even though we have different lanes? As long as we're not swerving into each other or slamming on our brakes or doing anything or making rude gestures at each other across the lanes, right? everything moves together, right? And we can move together because we all understand that, hey, yeah, I'm, I'm in this lane, you're in that lane, but we're, we can have unity of direction, right? Paul actually lays out what that unity and oneness looks like. 
And notice that it's what it's built around, right? Paul actually lays these things out. What are we unified around? What are we, where do we share our oneness in the church, in Christianity as followers of Jesus? We have the same body of Christ. We share the same body of Christ. We share the Holy Spirit. We share the same hope. We share the same Lord. We share the same faith. We share the same baptism. We share the same God. So we share all these things. So here's the question. If you know somebody who shares those things with you, you are, and I can be in unity, right? We can be unified together if we share the same relationship with Jesus, right? We may have our different lanes that we're in, but we're unified. We should be unified in our direction to following Jesus and on mission for Jesus in the world. There's a great Lutheran a quote that you may have heard, but it comes from a Lutheran theologian named Rupertus Meldinius. How many people have been re- reading Rupert right, lately, right? Anybody? You've been reading Rupert? Good. Uh, Rupert says this, in essentials, unity, in non-essentials, liberty, in all things, charity. Right? In essentials, unity, in non-essentials, liberty, in all things, charity. So our unity, our essentials, according to Paul, is the one body, the one Spirit, the one hope, the one Lord, the one faith, the one baptism, the one God, right? Those seven things. That's unity. So here's a question, kind of bring it home a little bit. I want you to think about a person, a brother or sister in Christ, that voted for you different than in the last election. So just think about that. What is your relationship with like them, with them like? Are you gentle and humble and peacekeeping and tolerantly loving them? That's the calling. And the call is to unity and to stay in unity with them despite how they voted. And when we allow those things to become greater than our passion and calling in Christ, we have made non-essentials essentials. We have made them the basis of relationship with brothers and sisters in Christ, not Jesus. I hope that is challenging for us. So then Paul says, what is then our role? If we share this unity, if we pursue this unity and we share this faith together and we're on this journey together, we're moving in unified direction what is our role in that? And he talks about the different gifts given to people of prophets and apostles and teachers and pastors, and one other thing. And he says this, and he says our role really is to build each other up <laughs> to maturity in love. Speak the truth in love. Be loving toward it. Be tolerantly loving towards one another in a way that you're moving each other towards un- unity and maturity in following Jesus. That's what he's saying. And that That's our role in the church. That's our role in being a part of the church is to actually help move people into maturity. And then he gives them the description of what immaturity looks like. It says in Ephesians 4.14, Then we will no longer be infants tossed back and forth by the waves and blown here and there by every wind of teaching and by the cunning and craftiness of people in their deceitful scheming. Right? And that's part of the, what we're feeling culturally is this cultural convulsion where we're, 
well, this person says this, and then this person says that, and then this person says this, and then they did, and this person voted here, and this person voted there, and this says this, and this group says this. But nobody's saying, what is God saying? <laughs> what is God calling? What is Jesus saying we're to do in this cultural context, in this cultural convulsion? And we're to be unified in figuring that out. Not that we all agree. Unity is not agreement. But it's saying, I'm going to stay in relationship and move forward with you. I'm going to stay at the table. I'm going to stay in conversation. I'm going to stay in relationship because we're brothers and sisters in Christ. So this is why I mentioned this before, but I would suggest reading a news, change a news source to allsides.com. Because on allsides.com, what they do is they show where the different news sources are pulling. So if they'll rate every news source, every article, every video, whatever, and you can see what is the far left saying about this topic and what is the far right saying about this topic. And when you start to see that, you start to see, oh, they're emphasizing different things. They're looking at things differently. They have different perspectives, right? The other beautiful thing about allsides.com is then I can start to evaluate my own self and say, am I really listening to both sides? Am I really interpreting what's going on and hearing the whole picture, or am I only just picking one side and listening to one source? Am I only hearing what I want to hear, right? Is that what I'm doing? A lot of people, you know, I get reactive, and that's part of reactiveness of our society today is they'll read, you'll, you know, and you may have done it. I know I've probably done this. You read an article that aligns with your opinion, post it, right? And then you go, that'll show them, right? You haven't really dug down any deeper than that. You just got agreement, right? You just found somebody who, want, who said what you wanted to say. And then you pulled in. You didn't dig in to see if their research, I, I've had this actually happen to me as a pastor. People send me things. I'm like, did you, did you look deeper? Did you dig deeper on this one? Because you're, look, this is not true. <laughs> this, is, this is false information that you're getting, giving me. And so here's the thing. Anytime you see a statistic or research, somebody say, well, the research says, even me, dig into it. Go find the research. Go find the actual research that was done to get to that point. And if you can't find it, that tells you something, right? So we actually have to be, in some ways, this helps us to really think more critically about what we're feeding ourselves and to really be critical thinkers in terms of our news source because I think the part of what we're doing is we're listening to whatever news source is of our choice and we're basing our view of society on that rather than on following Jesus in the kingdom. So, we got a little bit of cultural context. Hopefully I haven't scared you off yet. We got a little bit of the biblical context and there's more to it. So what's our denominational context? I want to talk about what's the lane, our denomination. So if you think about uh, uh, the Free Methodist Church as one of the lanes on the highway we looked at, here are some things historically that the church has been focused on. And here are what's called the five freedoms. You can go find this on the Free Methodist USA website. Here are the five freedoms. They come out of our history and our DNA as a movement. Number one is the freedom of all races to worship together in unity. So this idea comes from, where do, they, where do you think the free Methodists got this idea? 
Where, where did it come? Did it come from a political ideology? No, it comes from the Bible. Revelation talks about how one day everybody of every tribe, nation, language will worship together in unity before God. And so the church wanted to, wanted to be a part of that movement to God's vision for the church. And this was part of the history was during a time period when, during the Civil War, during a time of civil war in our nation. And B.T. Roberts, the founder of Free Methodism, was an abolitionist. So I want you to put these two words together, historically and again, Dr. Dr. Doug here can correct me. But we were evangelical abolitionists. You don't normally put those two words together, do we? But the Free Methodist Movement was an abolitionist movement, and today, I think, to move towards this unity, we need to abolish racism. We need to still practice that and abolish racism in our society. I think that's part of our movement today. Tomorrow's Martin Luther King holiday. You know, how are we responding to that? Juneteenth, when Juneteenth comes around, are we a part of recognizing that and celebrating that because we want to bring races together in unity and in worship together, right? Number two, freedom of women and men to be treated respectfully and use their gifts equally in the church, in the home, and in the world. Evangelicals have been ordaining women for over a hundred years, and I, I know some people today are still catching up with that. But this has been happening a long time, you know, and I'm still kind of scratching my head, like, what, what's, the, what's going on here in this area, right? And we have our opinions, and it's good to discuss them, but as far as our history, uh, B.T. Roberts, at the late, I think in the late 1800s, wrote a book called On Ordaining Women, <laughs> and believed in the ordination of women in the church at a time when that was not culturally acceptable. So B.T. Roberts was a part of that. In fact, he started thinking about this and talking about this when he was a part of what was now known today as a Methodist church, United Methodist Church. He started talking about that with them, I think, uh, historically, and then but because of his really outspoken prophetic voice around some of these issues of equality and uh, around, and also during the Civil War, getting away from uh, chattel slavery and ab- being an abolitionist, they kicked him out of the church because of this prophetic voice. And so the Free Methodist Church got started around some of these issues. Number three, was a big issue for the Free Methodist Church was the freedom of the poor to be treated with dignity in the church and with justice in the world. And so the reason we have free in our name, free Methodists, is historically part of that is because, uh, and again, I'm not perfect in my history lesson here because I talked to Adrian Meyer today, but one of the things that the, the free Methodists did was they said, we're not going to make people of different socioeconomic statuses sit at different seats in the church. We're going to make our pews free for everybody regardless of socioeconomic status. So the way I kind of get my brain around it is this. Who's ever been to a Mariners game? Anybody go to a Mariners game, Seahawks game? Been to the Kraken hockey game yet? I don't know. I haven't been. But do you notice there are different ticket prices? And what are the most expensive? The best seats are the most expensive seats, right? And so if you want to sit in the good seats, you got to have the money. It kind of was that way in the church, that the wealthy people who had the ability to give, they got the best spots in the church seating. 
And then those who couldn't afford to pay for those seats ended up sitting in the back or in the balconies of the churches because they were poor. And so B.T. Roberts said, we're not going to, we've we got to get away from this. We, we need to erase this from our worship. Everybody can sit where they want and worship together regardless of socioeconomic status. Number four is the freedom of the laity and the clergy to be given equal authority in decision-making positions within the church. We have a leadership team made up of lay people, chaired by a lay person, which was a decision that this church, specific church, made. And then number five, uh, we ha- here's the one I think we need to work on, historical, that we need to work on today, is the freedom of the Holy Spirit to inspire worship. Freedom of the Holy Spirit to inspire worship. I could work on this. I think our church could work on this one, that historically we were a part of a holiness movement and, and listening to the Holy Spirit and how the Holy Spirit was guiding us. And so I think that's an area for growth for me for sure. So that's where the church has, has been rooted and created. Then our bishops came out with what's called the five, free, the three, free Methodist way, five, another five. They like the number five in the Free Methodist Church, by the way. So the Free Methodist way for the future, as we move forward into, this cult, out, into and out of this cultural convulsion, here are the things they're, they're pointing us to. First one is life-giving holiness. Uh, we've been a holiness movement in the past, and starting to see holiness not as a burden or as an as a, as a expectation as much as how does holiness help me grow in follow, growing to maturity in Christ as part of what Paul talked about in chapter 4. So holiness is to be life-giving to us and lead us into the abundant life in Christ. The second one is love-driven justice, that we're to love God because, and drive, the love of God is driving our justice, that the love of God is making us seek justice for others because people matter to God. God loves them. They're created. Everyone's created in the image of God. But people who are in injustice, we want to help bring about justice because they matter to God. God cares for them, and they have value and worth. And so our focus is on loving, bringing justice in love to people. Christ, the next one is Christ-compelled com- multiplication, we are relational in our discipleship, meaning that our role, part of our role as disciples is to make other disciples. It's not to end with us. We're actually to be helping other people follow Jesus and inviting other people to follow Jesus and part of that uh, multiplying our discipleship. The next one and the fourth one is cross-cultural collaboration, that we come across, we bring unity, actually, unity will only come if we work towards racial reconciliation. Uh, if we don't work on racial reconciliation, we're, it's going to be hard for us to have unity and to have cross-cultural collaboration as equal partners coming together to work together in ministry and in the kingdom together in a unified manner. And then number, the fifth one is still this rootedness in, the God, in God-given revelation, this rootedness uh, holding unswervingly to the Bible as the inspired word of God and lens through which we approach culture. So that's the movement. That's the lane that our bishops are pointing us to. So hopefully you got a little bit of historical free Methodism, a little bit of where the free Methodism is headed in the future, and that this call uh, uh, by Paul in the Bible towards unity and Christian maturity. So I realize I've thrown a lot at you this morning. Did you get it all? If you didn't get it all, it's fine. Just pick one thing. Take it with you. But I thought I'd share just one story, because you know I like stories. 
I was in a church, and I mentioned this story to some people, but I was in a church, and, um, and I, I sat up, I used to sit up on the stage at this church in the, what I call the throne chair. You know, it was this big wooden chair with velvet on it, and it had, and like went up around my head like I was like in the Game of Thrones, or not the sword chair, no, that's a bad image, but you know what I'm talking about, just a throne chair, an old throne chair, like I was sitting on the throne. And I would sit up on the platform, and I could watch everything that's happening in the, in the congregation. In fact, I can see body language right now. I can see who's asleep, wake up. I can see, you know, who's bored, who's not bored, who's paid attention, right? I can see all these things. So I'm sitting in the, in the, up there on the front of the platform, and I see a couple over here, and the wife says something to her husband, whispers something to her husband. Husband gets up, walks to the back, and over on the back wall was the thermostat for the church. And he would go and he would change the thermostat. Then he would go and sit down. Then I would see another couple over here and they'd start talking. And then that guy would get up and he'd go over and he'd change the thermostat again. Then the ushers would walk down the aisle and they'd take up an offering. And they, as they took up the offering, they would, uh, you know, somebody would whisper something to them or pass them a note. And then the usher, oh yeah, okay. And then the usher would go back and go to the thermostat and reset the thermostat. This went on a few weeks. The chair of the trustee, that's what we call the chair of the trustees in that church was getting frustrated by this, and so he called a meeting. Can you imagine? Like, this is, what church, this is what we do in the church sometimes. We have meetings about thermostats. So we have this church meeting about the thermostat, and just the trustees. And they say, what are we going to do about thermostat? Because so-and-so wants it this, and so-and-so wants it that, and so-and-so wants it this, and blah, 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 blah. So finally they say, all right, we're going to, what's the common temperature that's for the common good, the unity of the church, Right? So we set, we figured out what that temperature is going to be based on utility. I mean, you, we could have done a whole matrix on this, right? What's the utility bills, blah, blah, blah. So we set it, we got a number, we set the thermostat at that number, and then the trustees put a lockbox on the thermostat. And that solved the problem, right? But the, here's the thing in that story. Who's, what's going on there for those people who want to change the thermostat? They're saying, I want this place to be comfortable for me. Will you make the church comfortable for me? Will you set it for me? Will you set it for my preferences and my comfort level and what I want? Or are we really seeking the common good, the unity of all, to come together? What's killing the church is individualism. Our individualism and our demands for our comforts is what's killing us as a church. Let's pray together. God, we come to you and we confess that we have thought more about our highly of ourselves than others. We have not sought to bridge gaps. We have not sought, sought to build unity. We have not sought to reach out to others in gentleness and tolerant love and speaking the truth in love. We have not taken on the way of calling that you've, the worthy life that you've called us to. And we just pause to confess that, Lord, that we, had, we are flawed human beings. We don't always get it right. We confess that we have broken relationship more than we have reconciled relationship. And so, Lord, would you forgive us? Would you help others to forgive us? Would you bring about a passion for unity in your church? that is worthy of that calling.
Lord, I thank you that you sent Jesus, Jesus, that you came into this world and that you prayed for us. You prayed for your disciples, not only then, but even today, that they would be one, that they would be one. You prayed for our oneness. You prayed for our unity, regardless of status, background, ethnicity, race, political ideology, opinions. You prayed that we'd be one. And one of the things that we know unifies us here today is this table of grace, that we all are receivers of your grace. We are all under one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God of all. And we are brothers and sisters in Christ. And I pray, we pray that you would show us that, you would reveal that to us today, that we are brothers and sisters in Christ above all. So Lord, pour out your Holy Spirit on us together today. Pour out your Holy Spirit on these gifts of bread and cup. Pour out your Holy Spirit on this table as we come to it that we will be your people, forgiven, grace-filled, love-filled people of God. And we pray together that prayer that you taught us to pray together. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not to temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen.